everybody. Welcome to The Bridge. If you're new with us, we're so glad you're here. My name's Jake, and if I've never met you, please come introduce yourself afterwards. We are going through the book of Acts like that sermon bumper uh, showed us, and it's pretty cool. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 37 to the end. That's where we're going to be tonight. Last week, we saw the first sermon of the Christian church where Peter stands up uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they start uh, sharing the gospel, the mighty deeds of God to all the people around. And all these people are gathering because they're there uh, for this feast called Pentecost. And they all gather together. And, and we, we, there's estimates that about 2 million people there in Jerusalem. They travel from all over to this feast. And, uh, and they are there listening to Peter talk about Jesus, the first Christian sermon. And remember the three points that we hit. We are uh, we're spirit-filled. We're directed and influenced by the work of the Spirit in our lives. We are Jesus-centered, that that is what our message is about. It's about Jesus, of the life that he lived, that God in the flesh came down and lived the perfect life, the life that we could not live, that we are sinful. We have sinned against God. We have missed the mark. We have fallen short of perfection. And so Jesus died for the sins of the world was crucified on the cross, dying for the sins of the world, and then he rose again three days later, conquering sin and death. He could not be held by the pangs of death, as Peter said. And he offers grace to us in order to be saved, that we can be saved from our sin, uh, saved from the punishment that, that should rightfully go on us, went on Jesus, the wrath of God being poured out on him, so that we could be passed over from the wrath of God. He offers that grace to us, and the last thing we need to know is that he's going to come back again. That he's coming back again to bring all of his people to himself and to judge evil and rebellious people fully and finally. So we're Jesus-centered. That is our message. And then finally, we're scripture-based, as Peter will walk through a bunch of different Old Testament uh, prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus, predicted and then fulfilled by Jesus, so that all of these Jews, these Israelite people would know he really is the Messiah. He really is the promised Messiah that, uh, that God was leaving little, uh, little cookie crumbles, right? Little hints along the way saying, hey, this is what the Messiah is going to be like. This is what the Messiah is going to do. And Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. And so Peter lays all of this out for these people as they're listening and here is their response. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? They were pierced to the heart. Maybe yours says cut to the heart. That's the only time we have that, that verb in the scripture. Or it's only used in this way in the scriptures. Pierced to the heart. They were cut to the heart. There is a grief and a guilt from the message they just heard. Why? Because they realized, one, they missed the Messiah. The promised Messiah was in their midst, and they didn't even realize it. Not only did they not realize it, number two, they crucified the Messiah. Saying, we killed our king. We killed our savior. Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine the grief of that moment, but then all of a sudden they're beginning to process that, that he had to die in order to save the world from their sins, that he gave his life as a ransom for many. 
because he has to die and that he's going to come back again. And so they are also afraid of this judgment that is coming. It says that he is going to come back again. So they are mixed with this guilt, uh, this grief, and this fear. And they're cut to the heart. Because all of a sudden their eyes are open to everything that has happened in the last 30 years. In the life, death, and resurrection of their Messiah. And here's their question. What shall we do? Say, hey, we really messed this up. What do we do now? How do we fix this? I, I resonate with the story when I was in, I think, elementary school, maybe fifth grade or something along those lines. Me and a bunch of my friends were over at my house, and uh, we were just roughhousing, running around, doing all these things. And you know how your parents don't usually love it when you're running in and out of the house and you're like slamming doors and all that stuff. Like it's just not a really favorite thing of your parents. Well, we were doing that because my, my mom, well, my parents were gone and they were like going out to get food or something along those lines. We're just running around the house and we're roughhousing and slamming doors. And uh, one of the doors that we slammed was like in our little utility room. And my mom got this like new clock that she really liked. She loves like knickknacks and she loves weird things. And so she got this new clock that's up there and it's probably been up there for maybe a week. And in our running around, as we're like somebody's chasing somebody, the door slams, and guess what happens? The clock falls, and it shatters. And all of us stand in stunned silence because we just broke this brand-new clock that my mom really liked and was really excited about. And we're looking around. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to process all of this stuff. And my older brother's there. He's like three years older than us. We look at him, and we're like, what do we do? Like, what do we do? And he just said, I don't know, mom's coming home. You'll just have to wait till then. And we're like, no, that's the last thing we want to do. We want to fix everything. Like, can we, can we like, tape this back together? Can we glue it? Where's the glue? Like, maybe we should just clean the house. And we did. We just, we just cleaned everything else in the house. And we, like, kind of stitched it back together. We didn't, like, glue it at all. We were just piecing this thing back together. And all it's just fractured remains. And we're like, this will make it all better, right? And we're just, we're just doing everything that we can to try and make it right. But we absolutely couldn't. We just simply couldn't, and we were terrified of when my mom was going to get home and what she was going to say. And I, I think just that little idea encapsulates what's happening here. Saying we messed up, and we can't fix this. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing that we can do to make this right. There's no good things that we can do. There's no amount of stitching together uh, this broken scenario to make this right. We killed our Messiah. And he's coming back again. So they go to the source and they say, what shall we do? Now, here's what you need to know. Uh, that, uh, that moment, that response that they have is a work of the spirit. And this is big for us because as we share the gospel, we are hoping that the spirit would work in the lives of the people that we share the gospel with, right? And so we got to ask ourselves, what are we looking for? How do we know that the spirit of God is at work in people? And it's when they realize they've messed up, that they aren't right with God. And there's nothing that they can do to fix it. They are hopeless. And they are afraid of coming judgment. They're asking, how do we make this right? How do we avoid these things? There is a desperation. There's nowhere to go. You just got to wait till he comes back, right? See, that is the perfect spot for somebody to be. Because that is the exact place that Jesus meets people. That's where Jesus meets people, in a place of desperation, in a place of hopelessness, 
that they can't do anything to fix it. Because here's the deal, as long as a man or woman or whatever uh, thinks he can do it on his own, as long as they think that they can do this on their own, they will never experience real salvation. They will never experience grace. Because if you think you can stitch it back together, if you can make this work, if you can get right with God on your own effort before he shows back up, you're wrong. And you're incapable of understanding grace. As long as you think you bring something to the table of this salvation moment, that you could add to it, you could fix it, you could lighten that load, whatever it may be, there's no way because it's all about grace. So the best place that we can be is of dependence, of humility, of a hope that is outside of ourselves and calling upon God to do what only he can do. And that's extend grace, undeserved favor. And so as we pray, we ought to pray for conviction in the lives of others, that they would be convicted for their sin, convicted for what they have done, for their standing with God that is an enemy of God, there is a not peace in that relationship, it's enmity. There's a separation there and there's nothing they can do to bridge that gap. They have to come to God with hands empty, pleading for grace. And that's where salvation happens. What shall we do? Here's what Peter says, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. It says, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. That word, repent, it's the word metanoia. It's the word metanoia in, in Greek. And that means to change your mind. It is a changing of your mind. About what? A changing of your mind about who God is. About who you are. About what you've done and what you're living for. There's a change in your perspective. And that change in your perspective, that change of mind is going to lead to a change in action. But it's not just a bunch of, let me just start doing a lot of good things and maybe that'll fix it. There has to be a complete change in your life. For the Israelites here, for the Jews here, it was realizing that Jesus really is God. He really was the Messiah. This guy 50 days ago that we crucified because he, he claimed to be God, we crucified him, we executed him as a blasphemer. And then they realized we were wrong. He is God. He is our Savior. He is our King. There is a change. He is the promised Messiah, and we killed him. There's a realization that everything that we have done in our lives has fallen short of God's glory and is deserving of wrath that we are rebellion, rebellious to the throne of God. We are rebellious to his ways. Now, here's the thing. I don't, I don't think we really let that set in about our standing before God without Jesus. Like, if you are not a Christian, 
you are an enemy of God. Like, no, 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 I, I like God. He's a pretty good God. Like, I, he's really kind to me, and I do my best. Like, I save kittens from trees. Like, I'm a pretty good person. Perfection is that standard. And the scriptures are clear. If you do not have a relationship with God through Jesus, you are an enemy of God. And I know that's harsh. I'm not trying to scare you, be mean. I'm trying to be honest because that's the truth. And the most loving thing that we can do is know where we stand, right? Where do you stand with God? Because if you think it's on the basis of you being good, your, your good works outweighing your bad works, and you're just kind of tipping the scales by a little bit, you're wrong. You're an enemy of God, and you're deserving of wrath. And we have to see that. There has to be a change of perspective on where we stand. Change of mind about who God is, about what you've done, and what you're living for. This is the moment that we all have to have in this moment that that we were living for ourselves. We were living to make a name for ourselves. We were living for the things of this world. We were chasing a pleasure. We were chasing experiences. We were chasing status. We were chasing all of these things on this earth. It was about us. And in this moment of salvation, we realize I'm not living for myself anymore. My life, my existence is for the glory of God and his alone. I live for him. I live for his glory. I live for his ways. I worship him and I serve him. And this is where the change of action happens. Repentance has the idea of a 180, right? That you were going this way. You were living in a certain way. We were all there. We were all doing this. This was my high school days. I was living for my popularity. I was living for myself that everybody would like me. Everybody would think I was great. I just wanted pleasure in any way that I could get it. But I also wanted to be a good kid that everybody liked because I thought, that made me awesome. That made me a better person or whatever it was, but it was all about me. And I was going in this direction about me. And then God opened my eyes to see the truth. And it changed everything I thought. That I wasn't right with God. I was an enemy of his because I was making a name for myself, not a name for him. And that change of mind led to a change of action that I turned in a total commitment towards God and for God. It's a 180, it's an about turn. And it comes from this mind change that I was wrong, you are right, I repent, I am turning away. We stop trying to find life in anything else. And we stop suppressing the goodness of God and, and exchanging the glory of God, the creator, for his created thing, because that's what we do. That's Romans 125. That's our experience outside of Christ in a nutshell. We take the creator and all that he created and we worship it and we worship ourselves rather than the creator. It's idolatry in the worst way. Now this repentance is a total commitment. It's a total commitment. And if you are in this salvation thing, if you're trying to get right with Jesus, if you're, if you're saying that you are a Christian because uh, you, just, you just don't want to go to hell, to be frank, but you don't really want to live for God, you just kind of want to do your own thing, and, and Jesus is just kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card to you, and you just kind of pull it out, or maybe when life gets hard, you, you'll then start to pray, and then you'll start to like rub this magical lamp and be like, God, okay, make my life better again. 
here's the, here's the deal. Like, to be, I mean, I don't know, Carrie Underwood or something, Jesus, take the wheel. Like, I, I think a lot of times we, we want to stay driving the car, and we just invite Jesus in to give us little directions along the way. But that's not, that's not what a life with Christ is about. Saying, hey, you drive. Have your way with my life. I'm living for you, for your glory, for your ways alone. It's not about me anymore. It's about you and your glory. Have the wheel. There it is. There's, that's, I think, Carrie's theology. Um, and so it's a total commitment. It's a total commitment. He's not just some holy salt that we pour on our diet of human activity. He's everything. He is Lord and he is Savior. And he wants all of you, every aspect of your life to be surrendered to him. That's change. That's change. And you might be thinking, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. I thought this was like Jesus just accepts you as you are and he loves you as you are. And like you just come and, and it's great. And you just continue on your life and he just loves you. And he, he pours that out on you and everything's just fine and dandy. And yes, God's love is unconditional. But here's the reality. God loves us despite who we are. God loves us despite our sin, our brokenness, our rebellion against us, and he still chooses to love us and to call him to himself. We are saved by grace through faith, nothing that we can do. But when we are saved, when we become a child of God, we are now created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. When we have a new identity, we have a new purpose, we have a new everything. So no, we don't do anything to be saved, but once we are saved, everything changes. And we live for him for the rest of our days. So we repent. It says we repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. This phrase gets a lot of people confused. It says be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. There are people... Uh, or, or groups in, in the Christian world, or whatever you want to call it, denominations, uh, that would say that you have to be baptized to be saved. The act of baptism saves you, and they will go to verses like this and say, see, you are baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, here's what's really important, that word for, right? F-O-R, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the key here. Some people take that word to mean so that, be baptized so that your sins will be forgiven. While others would say, be baptized because your sins have been forgiven. And that word for can mean both of those things. It can absolutely mean both of those things. Here's, here's a weird example. If I just told you, this is not true, I am going to prison for murder. <laughs> oh. Uh, think about that. I am going to prison for murder. Now, does that mean I'm going to prison to murder people or I'm going to prison because I murdered people? Right? There's a distinction there. Like, this is weird. Stop talking about murder. Uh, here's the deal. In the scripture, what it's talking about here, that word in Greek, ice, it means because of. This is because your sins have been forgiven, be baptized. There are multiple words in Greek that, that Luke uses all throughout his, his, his uh, records 
like henna is another word in the Greek that means so that or in order to. But he uses ice because he's talking about this is a because of, not a so that. And I know this is a weird grammar lesson and we're moving on really quickly, but, but that's so important. And baptism doesn't save you. Baptism does not bring about the forgiveness of sins. We are baptized as a public expression, an outward display of an inward reality. It is a public expression of what Jesus has done for us. And it's Jesus's work on the cross, his death and his resurrection. That is the work that brings about salvation for man that put their faith in him. Because here's the deal, if we needed to be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, then salvation isn't by grace alone. And the rest of scripture is now off and there's contradiction. But we interpret scripture with scripture and we see these things together that we are saved by grace, not of anything that we can do, i.e. baptism. We don't get baptized to be saved, but because we are saved. So we repent and we are baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. Now here's what's cool. I, I said this is an outward expression of an inward reality. In baptism, we, this is Romans 6, Romans 6 theology as, as Paul walks through this. We are now identifying ourselves with Christ. That's why we get baptized. We're saying, I am now with Christ. So when Christ died for sin, I died as well. I died to sin. Why? Because Christ died to sin. When Christ rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, it happened to me. Now we are joined with the work of Christ on the cross. We, didn't, we weren't there physically, but now through our faith, we are joined with him spiritually. And so baptism celebrates that we are joined with Christ's work. That's a beautiful thing. That's why we get baptized. That's, and, and if you have not been baptized Let's do it. We don't, have, I don't, we don't have anything right here, but we have baptism classes where we explain all of those things and you get to share your story and, and we do it like on Sunday afternoons. Man, we would love, love, love for you to jump in and, and do that. But we, we usually get groups together and people have signs and they're like, get dunked on or whatever. I don't know, it's weird. And we celebrate because this is a celebratory thing. And how cool would it be if we as a bunch of people in this college ministry would, would pursue that? And that, that is, I think, a great step of obedience that if you're saved, that you should be baptized because you are publicly associating yourself, identifying yourself with Jesus, saying, I'm his. Now you gotta realize that for the, for the Jews in that day, that's a big thing. For them to publicly associate themselves with Jesus, it was a terrifying thing. It was a major testament to their belief in Jesus. Because remember, just a few weeks ago, Jesus was executed publicly in front of everybody. A horrifying and disgusting death because they said he claimed to be God and he is not. He is a blasphemer and he deserves to die. And now 50 days later, you're going to be baptized and you're saying, I'm with that Jesus. For the Jews, this meant they were completely kicked out of their families. They were disassociated with in, in large ways that uh, they were just kind of removed from everything in Judaism. Not 
soon, uh, soon after this, they would be kicked out of the temples. They would be uh, persecuted heavily by Jews, by Romans, by everybody. And so for them to be baptized was massive. It was massive for them. And I think what we learn from that is that we just can't be, here's the term that I don't, I don't know, you maybe don't like it, whatever, but we can't be closet Christians. We can't just have this faith, but just kind of keep it to ourselves and not tell our friends and not tell our family and be like, well, this is just kind of my faith, but I don't really like talking about it. Like, that's just the exact opposite of what we see here. I mean, this was a bold public profession. They are bold with their faith. And that's what we have to do. We have to be bold with our faith. That's Paul's big thing, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew and for the Gentile. I mean, that's what it is. is I'm not ashamed of this. It's the power of God to do a work in me that I would now stand and live for him. And we can't be ashamed of the gospel. In college, we did this unashamed weekend, and I, I want to bring it here. We, would do, uh, we just had a weekend where Friday we would go all around Dallas and, and we'd pray uh, in these just pretty broken areas of Dallas. And then Saturday morning we did... Uh, these different service projects all throughout Dallas. And then Saturday afternoon, uh, we would just go share our faith everywhere. We would go to libraries. We'd go to Clyde Warren Park. Anywhere we could go, we would just share our faith. And then Saturday night, we had ourselves a, a big worship night, like in a park there. And it was absolutely incredible. And, and one of the first things that we did, uh, they had us do, because we're all terrified, right? Like, we're about to share the gospel with people, and it's going to be scary, and they're going to hate us, and they're going to be like, all of a sudden, some atheist scientist that makes us look bad. Like, that's my perception every time. And he just quoted that. And he says, hey, hey, go ahead and repeat this after me. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. That's powerful. We know it to be true. But when we live it out, it gets a lot tougher, right? So we with these Jews, we can't be ashamed of the gospel. We have to be real. Jesus talks about this. He's like, who has a light and then puts it under a lamp and hides that light in the same way we have a light we have a truth we have the glorious good news of what jesus has done in us and yet how are we going to go and hide that from the world we can't we have to be bold with it and so they were baptized associating themselves with jesus and that's what peter makes clear that what that's what we have to do now now let's look at this result here in verse 40. Um, and, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. How do you like that? First message, 3,000 souls believed and are baptized and saying, I'm with Jesus. And that is absolutely incredible. But here in the context, there's probably 100,000 people listening. It's a very small portion that actually stood up and proclaimed their faith that were actually saved. And I'm not trying to rain on their par parade at all and be like, oh, you know, Peter's not that good. Like, that's not that impressive and percentage-wise. Like, that's not what I'm trying to do at all. I'm trying to give us a perspective of success and reality. 
success for us in the church is not just getting a bunch of people to show up and, and, and do these things. Success for us is in who remains and, and deepens their faith with God. It's not just going really wide and like, let's have this dope concert and do all of these different things so we can have a big number and say, look at all these people. Look at all these people that showed up. And I'm glad that I all heard the gospel and had an opportunity. But what's important to us and what matters at the end of the day is who believes and who remains. There's a story in uh, Ecuador. I have a lot of friends that went there in college and they um, had a guy, I forget his name off the top of my head, but he, he went and he did like this mega revival thing. You probably heard about these people do these mega revivals and they had 40,000 people show up. And they were at this, this kind of local area in one of the churches there. And there were 40,000 people that were there on that weekend hearing the gospel preached. And this guy, and they said this is like a, a massive mo moment of revival in Ecuador and all these different things. And they said in a year's time, they went and talked to that local pastor. And he says, we have three people here in our church. And it's a house church. 40,000 heard. Three remained. What is success for us? What are we as the body of believers? Can I tell you, it's, it's, for, it's verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It's awesome that 100,000 heard. But what's important is that 3,000 continually devoted themselves. They remained. They stayed. It's not about who shows up. It's about who stays till the end. That's what we're about. That's what we do as believers. We stay to the end. We continually devote ourselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. This is the word of God. To their teaching right here. We're listening to it. We're devoting ourselves to their teaching. We're we're hearing it. We're listening it. We're taking it in. We're reminding ourselves of truth. We're we're reshifting what we might believe about God, what we might believe about ourselves, but we're also living it out. We are living it out. Our lives are being changed by by the Word of God that we would live in light of truth, live in light of what He has called us to and what He has commanded us to. We devote ourselves to teaching to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Fellowship, that word is uh, koinonia. Koinonia, basically, I mean, it's the idea that we are in the business of doing life together. That's what fellowship is. Coin, uh, we get the word coin from it. Hey, nice, you now know that. Uh, coin is, it's common. Everybody had coins, and everybody agreed on the value of those coins. So what's that saying is in this fellowship, the reason we as believers have fellowship together is because we have a commonality. What's that commonality? Jesus. We are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the body of believers. We have a commonality together. So we are in the business of doing life together. We, we share the same values. We share the same truths. We, uh, we, are what the, we are the church. We share the same purpose. He says, we know why we exist. We know what we are for. And so we fellowship together. And, and let me be clear on that. 
Fellowship doesn't just mean we get together and watch the Cowboys. I love watching the Cowboys. It's fun to watch with other people, but our fellowship is deeper than that. It's got to be. It's got to be like we're more than just kind of friends that hang out and maybe every once in a while we talk about Jesus. But solid fellowship, solid friendships that we should have are those that make us look more, look more like Christ. So here's the question for you. Are, are you challenged? Are you motivated to follow Jesus more, to look more like him because of the people that are around you? Like, do they challenge you? Do they motivate you? Do they encourage you? Do they spur you on? Is that something that you experience because of the people that are around you? Or is it the opposite? Reflect on that. And then the other part of that, what about you? Do people look more like Christ? Are they more encouraged? Are they more motivated and more challenged and spurred on to love others and, and to walk with Christ because of the way that you are living, because of the way that you interact with them? Is that true of you? Is that true of your people? Because that's the fellowship that's happening here. They break bread together. That's the idea of the Lord's Supper, but also every meal is an opportunity for us to remind ourselves of God's provision for us. Yes, in that meal, but also in what he did on the cross. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood that was spilled for you, that you would have life. And so every time we eat, we remind ourselves, God has provided for us. And we thank him for it as we break bread together into prayer. That we are a dependent people and we call upon the Lord often together. This is something that I want to grow in. I was convicted in this as I, as I studied. And I, I listen to a lot and I, I hear a lot and I give a lot of counsel when people come up to me about things that are going on in their life and situations they're jumping into and things they're trying to figure out and all of these different things. And I'll give my counsel and I'll be like, man, thanks for sharing but how great of an opportunity in that moment to say, hey, can, I, can we just pray right here, right now? And like, oh, I know it's awkward. It might be uncomfortable, but this is everything because God is the provider. God is the sustainer. God is the director of our steps. And for us not to call on him and ask him into it, how prideful, how foolish of us that we wouldn't be people that are constantly dependent on God, constantly asking him to work, to move, to work in our lives. And so we are prayerful people, praying for one another, praying together, asking God to work. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. What a caring and loving people say, you have a need, let me fill it. I'll sell my land. It's yours. See, that's living in light of eternity. They're like, oh, but I might need that later. That's selfish. See, I don't need these materials. They're all going to rot anyway. Because you are more important than myself. So I'm going to do whatever I can to love you. Man, what if we were about that, of meeting the needs of the people that are around us? What a great picture of love that is. 
46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's incredible. That's the church. That's this glimpse of church, of what we are, of what we do, of what we are about. And here's the thing, none of that in there, like I don't have to explain, here's what that looks like. We know what it looks like. The only thing that we have to to ask ourselves and reflect on is how we're doing. How are we doing in reflecting that? And before you start thinking about everybody else, how are you doing to reflect that? How are you doing in these areas? Are you striving for those things? Are you selfless? Do you care for others? Do you give of yourself, of your time, of your possessions, of God's resources that he has given you to bless others? Do you go out of your way to encourage people, to challenge them, to walk with them, to speak truth to them, to share God's word, to pray for them? Do you pray for people or you just say, I'm praying for you? How are you doing? Man, it's easy to look at everybody else and say, well, they're not that much. They don't do that. They don't do that for me. How are you doing? And before you approach somebody else about how they're not doing, would you pray for them? Would you encourage them? Would you model that for them? And then invite them to come along with you? Friends, we have a tremendous opportunity to be about what God is about, to be what the body is called to be. And I hope that we, we run headlong into that, whatever. I don't know if that's the right phrase, but you get the idea. I hope we run into that, that we run for it. And we don't let mild inconveniences, we don't let uh, uh, discomfort and, and just laziness get in the way of the opportunity that we have as a people. Can I just tell you from the beginning of of my time here, uh, leading this college ministry, January of 2018, I've just been praying some of the same things over and over and over and over again. That this would be a family, that we would genuinely love one another and that our fellowship, our friendships would go beyond Tuesday nights that we would do life together. And that the life that we do together is more than just some common friendships, but it's running after God together. That there would be something about this that is supernatural because of what God is doing in us. That this would be a place people can belong. People can be known, like really, really known that we can take the mask off, we can take the cape off and not fool anybody, that we are people that are in need of grace. And we all know that, right? We're in need of grace. But then when we actually have to share people with why we need grace, we step away from that. Say, life's good, just kind of busy. Pray for my tests. Ouch. (laughs) There's something going on here that people need to know about, that people can rally around you pray for you and encourage you that we'd be known we'd belong we'd be equipped and trained up 
for a life of worship and service to the king. You know, college ministry is such a weird ministry because it's so transitional. Like you're here for four years, maybe. Then you graduate, you go off with your life. Maybe some of you stick around. I love that when you stick around and you serve with us. That's awesome. But in a lot of ways, we are a sending ministry. We are raising you up. We are challenging you. We are encouraging you. Or you are, we are showing you what, what the church can be. And we're sending you out to be a blessing wherever the Lord plants you next. To be a fruitful tree that is a blessing to other people that are around you. And I hope that's what happens. I hope as we equip you and raise you up and challenge you that where you go next, you are a blessing there because of what has happened here. But this is a shared commitment that we have for one another. Because we can't do this on our own. We all have blind spots. We all have tough days. We all have days where we can't see beyond ourselves. Where we don't want to get up out of bed. We don't want to do the hard things. We don't want to, to be disciplined. And that's why we need each other. To challenge each other. To train each other up. So that we can be sent out. That's the prayer from the beginning. And that's the prayer now best thing that we can do is ask ourselves, how are we doing? How am I doing? Can I tell you the most amazing thing that, that, that gets me more than anything else? It's not the actions, but how devoted they were to them. I love that they were, they were in the, the apostles' teaching and that they were fellowshipping and they were breaking bread and they were praying. But the thing that amazes me is that they were continually devoted to it. And what if we were described as people that were continually devoted to this goal, to this picture, this glimpse, to pursue that and run after it? But if I was a betting man, I could bet more than anything else. We are people that get really excited and we start something and then in nine days we're out and we've stopped and we've given up. But what if we could be continually devoted to what God has called us to? I think it would be an absolutely amazing thing and God would be glorified. And I don't care how many people show up. I don't care how wide, so to speak, this room gets and how many people fill these seats. What I care about is you and your walk with the Lord and if that is deepening and growing and if you are a fully devoted follower of Christ, that's the goal. And that's our prayer. Father, thank you for this glimpse of, of what we can be, of where we're going, of what you have called us to. I pray that we would be a people that are continually devoted to your word, that we would be continually devoted to one another and challenging one another, loving on one another, sharing with one another, being known to one another, to breaking bread together, that we would share meals often. We would remind ourselves of your provision often. The people of prayer and God, I pray for anyone in here that does not know you, Lord, would you cut them to the heart? 
Would you open the eyes of their hearts to see you as you are and to see themselves in light of who you are? They would see their need for you and their helplessness to save themselves. And I pray for my friends here, God, would you give them opportunity after opportunity to love on the people that are around them, to share of the good news of the gospel and that your spirit would bring conviction. Oh God, would you give us grace for this journey because we can't do it. We're gonna fail, we're gonna mess this up, we're gonna hurt each other's feelings. Would you cover us in grace and love and mercy? And would it be for your glory as we worship you now? Amen. Please stand as we worship.